we got together as a team we said that listen we couldn't be 400 million forever we did want to grow we wanted to scale up with speed and we put in place structures that have worked well for us for instance again the approach here was not to do things incrementally when it came to the front end large deal incentives were quadrupled we did not increase it by 20 30 40% they were quadrupled straight out the bat when it came to the mothership the delivery organization the range of increments was tripled so the best versus somebody at the lagging end the difference in terms of the increment that they were getting was tripled straight off the bat so that was the second thing that we did those changes which were pretty significant changes also impacted the operating ethic of the organization hi wherever you're listening to us i hope you're doing well welcome to the daily tech conversation where we bring you insights from tech entrepreneurs cxos and investors i'm hariyarakli and in this episode sudhir singh CEO of CoForge, one of India's well-known mid-cap IT services providers, talks about how the company is set to more than double its annual revenues to a billion dollars for the current fiscal year compared with 5 years ago. He also talks about the culture, which he says is a fancy word for the lived experience of the employees in the company, something on which CoForge has not economized, Sudhir says, that supports the 22,500 strong IT providers ambition. to double its revenues again Today welcome to this podcast thank you so much for making time for this sir Hari I'm very very happy to be here thank you for inviting me to the place All right of course uh, whoever is following the IT services sector in India knows about your company uh, no need for any any extended kind of introduction tell us a little bit about what coforge is uh, today and then we'll go from there Sure, Hari. So let me take a quick stab at it, right? Coforge today is a team of twenty-two thousand plus consultants across the world, somewhat atypical in its approach to solving business problems. We are specialists, not just we're not just engineers and technologists. We are engineers and technologists who spend an inordinate amount of time understanding the very limited functional spaces that we focus on. So that's who CoForges, twenty-two thousand plus strong team, functional and tech consultants, trying to solve problems not just with a technology lens. Of course, we have a very strong tech lens. We are all engineers, most of us, but we've invested very significantly in understanding the L one to L five processes of three industries and only three: financial services, insurance, and travel. and we try to solve problems in those lens a somewhat atypical organization also hari in that uh, we've had a pretty interesting a pretty strong growth run over the last 5 6 years and yet we have had the lowest employee attrition the highest employee retention of possibly any it services firm on the planet so that's that's one thing that makes us atypical the other thing that makes Coforge, as it is today, a typical is the very high uh, repeat business that we get from our clients for a firm our size, and we're only about a billion odd dollars. Ninety-three percent of our business is repeat. Now that's the kind of repeat business that you normally hear from the scaled IT players. So very high employee retention makes us a typical. Very high repeat business makes us a typical. The fact that we have created 
we own, we sell, we manage, we upgrade our own platforms in the select industries we operate in. It's not just services only. Again, makes us atypical. So how that's how I would characterize CoForge, Hari. Okay. Maybe you could also briefly tell us about yourself. I know in tech itself, you've been there for more than 20 years and several years before that uh, in the industry in general. Give us a snapshot. All right. So let me take two minutes. I grew up across India, Hari. My dad was in the army, so I just kept rolling from cantonment to cantonment across across India. And a lot of that love for travel, a lot of that love for meeting people, different backgrounds came from where I grew up. I started off, as you said, in Levers, and I joined Levers in the mid-90s. Uh, I was there with Levers for an extended term. I did the entire management trainee stint, the sales stint. I was a brand manager, a senior brand manager, and after six and a half years is when I left. I came to tech services because I thought Hindustan Lever, I still believe in Hindustan Lever. I think it's called HUL now, it's a fantastic organization. But it was an organization focused on India. It was an organization in the consumer products business. I saw IT services as the ultimate horizontal. If, if you are in IT services, you can actually work on engagements across any industry in the world. And of course, I saw that as a global role. Infosys then was about a $200, $250 million organization. I joined them in the US. I joined them in sales because I thought if I can sell detergents, salt, ATA, personal products in India, I could sell anything anywhere. So that's that's been my story. Okay. Tell us also about uh, this idea of you know tech services and I mean tech and consultants. Also, I was by way of homework, I was looking at your website, one of the things, and I think you have separately mentioned 3,000 odd consultants. Uh, so just give us a sense of what that means. And I'm thinking, you know, layman's terms, you all bring much more, you know, deeper and wider domain expertise today to IT services than was, you know, possible or prevalent maybe even five years ago. So yeah, give us a sense of what's happening today in your world. So Hari, uh, the way we looked at ourselves just about five or six years back was we said in order to solve a problem, a very strong lens that anybody, and we like to think of ourselves as consultants, can bring in is bring in a lens around emerging technologies, bring in a lens around proven technologies to solve the problem, not just look at the elegance of the solution, but also look at the resilience of the solution, the applicability of the solution. So that was the lens going in. We thought, and I think all of us have seen this, for a team to be effective, for an organization to actually add value and not just talk about value, we could do a lot better across our engagements if the teams that we had also knew the functional space that they were operating in. So six years back, we said BFS is a very big space, but we will focus on the capital markets by side only. Six years back, we said insurance again is a big space. We will focus on PNC and specialty insurance only. Similarly, six years back, we said travel is a very big space. So instead of saying now we will focus on all of travel, we will focus on airlines and airports only. What that's done for us is it allows us to create alliances which are very sharply focused. For example, our alliance with Duck Creek in the PNC space. It allows us to put almost all our investments in hiring SMEs, in hiring architects, in hiring functional consultants in very narrow spaces. And when you actually have a team that walks in for an engagement, in the space that they understand both on the process side and the technology side, the conversation is richer. To give you an example, when we walk into an engagement, we like to walk in 
the first conversation is not just about this is the enterprise architecture, this is how we disaggregate it, these are the program level architectures, the project-based architecture view. We walk in saying, hey, listen, we are a bunch of folks who work with a lot of your peers in the industry because this is all that we do. We go from project to project, client to client. Let us give you our view. It's not going to be a management consulting view. It's not going to be the view that a BCG or a McKinsey or a Boone or, a, or somebody else will give you. It is going to be our lived experience of where we think your competitors are in this small space that you're operating in and where we think coming in you are and what our recommendations would be. So it's a very, it's a somewhat different, a somewhat narrower, a somewhat more nuanced view to how we think we like to add value. But that's how we did. We look at the process experience. We want to understand the processes. And then we know the technology and then we try to figure out how to add value there. Yeah, I think clearly the, today's numbers are also reflecting, you know, your game plan of implementing this uh, sharp focus on specific competencies and so on. So again, for sort of sake of completeness and for a more general audience, and I kind of put myself in that category as well. Uh, you mentioned the L1 to L5 processes and being very cognizant with what that means. Give us a sense of what it means. So, I mean, uh, we, we could uh, we could take something uh, across financial services. We could take something across uh, across insurance or travel. Let's start with insurance, right? Because if you look at us, insurance is an interesting space from our vantage because we have our own platform in the insurance space, in the specialty insurance space. Today, if you go to the London Lloyds market, a big chunk of the volumes, almost a quarter to one third, of all transactions being undertaken in that in that entire exchange is on the back of our platform itself. It's not it's not somebody nobody came in. There was no client who came in and said these are the functional specs, these are the tech specs. Now you build a platform for us. It's a space that we know completely soups to nuts. We have the industry SMEs within our organization who look at to your immediate question. What is the, what does specialty insurance, what are the level one processes when it comes to specialty insurance mean? For instance, in specialty insurance, if you want to have, uh, if you're creating a solution for, let's say, ransomware, somebody who's, somebody who's a politically sensitive individual and economically sensitive individual in a part of the world who wants to come in and apply for ransom, that would be specialty insurance, a classic case, because you, you can't have a, monolithic scaled up solution for that if that's ask one level one and as you start looking at how does one look at risk assessment how does one look at the these are largely going to be manual specific underwriting processes how does one actually look at benchmarking how does one look at data you would then take the level one ask there is you would look at all level one processes across this specific ask and then start disaggregating them very similar to how we look at tech architecture, right? You create an enterprise architecture for an organization, then you start disaggregating it. So when we talk about level one to level five, we're actually talking about an enterprise process as normally level one. And we disaggregate that to the next four levels because normally it's level four to level five from where functional specs on the technology side actually start emanating from. So that's what we mean by level one to level five. And uh, that's that's how we normally like to operate using our functional and our technical consultants. Hmm. Okay, uh, if you step back a bit, um, you, you've been in the US for several years, um, and today 
in a way you're kind of on ground zero in many different ways politically uh-huh. geopolitically as well as on the tech front so much churn so many new things are coming up chat right. gpt and what not so from your vantage point tell us about what is happening with enterprises i mean the narrower sort of let's look at the enterprises and some of your largest customers what, just give us a broader sense of what's happening in the world Uh, all right so le- let me let me let me start narrow and then try to radiate upwards right so if if i were to react to what you said about chat gpt the broader generative ai technologies whether it's chat gpt whether it is bard if uh, google comes up with bard over time they were announced it uh what what is what is happening which seems to be somewhat atypical is that the speed of adoption seems to have increased now chat gpt is just about a few months old at least it's been in the news over the last few months but we already have started getting requests to figure out how we can start using some of these technologies and injecting them within the solutions that we have we have an ai powered solution we call it quasar we use it for intelligent data document processing we have already taken chat gpt and injected it and inserted it into that solution for specific use cases in the insurance space only so the one thing that we are seeing it's not a massive change but to start narrowly in the generative ai space with chat gpt and i'm pretty sure this is going to happen with bard as well as the the speed with which the asks are coming and the expectation around being able to fold up some of these texts into use case driven applications has increased something very similar again in that narrow realm would be metaverse that we've talked about till the conversation seems to have veered more towards generative ai right metaverse again initially financial services there was a general perception what we picked up from clients was this is not going to be of use materially this is going to take a few years to to mature but we already see example travel hurry travel operators are finding use cases around metaverse extremely useful in their attempt to get away from brochures which were all about photographs and actually generating use cases where they can take their clients use the technology to give them a sense in terms of where they are likely to land up if they sign up for a tour package right similarly banks who initially for the first one year were thinking that they would find it very difficult to figure out practical solution practical uses for metaverse these days increasingly and we are working with a bank which is using the metaverse to create a virtual bank to get some of the more gen z consumers customers that they are targeting a little more comfortable with doing transactions in that space so at a narrow base your question around what's happening in the us metaverse generative ai use case driven adoption is increasing and it's happening at a faster pace than we would have let's say 10 years down the line see a new technology actually getting adopted and use case driven examples being put into place that's that's one thing that we at least that i'm saying that we are seeing as an organization the second thing that we thing is and this has gone on for the last 2 or 3 years uh, is just about every organization uh now re- may not regard itself as a digital organization but does want to be a technology organization forget digital technology and the nuances there if you speak to a candy maker they want to be a technology organization at the core we 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 had some very interesting conversations with one of the largest shoe manufacturers in the world and and the conversation that you have with them these days i'm amazed at the extent to which there is massive willingness to embrace change that can be powered by tech so forget digital tech that's the other big change that we are seeing the third thing that's coming from this 
is a change in just the org structure of organizations that we deal with. 20 years back, when I left Levers and joined the technologies, our conversation used to be more around, let's look at what the CIO budget for this year is. Let's hope that the CIO budget for next year doesn't go down. Let's try to target the non-discretionary aspects of the CIO budget because the budget used to fluctuate with the fortunes of the business very drastically. These days, we find increasingly that tech spend is largely being regarded as non-discretionary because firms believe that it is going to be the that aspect of their aggregate spend that will really differentiate them. So that's the third thing that we're seeing, and a lot of it gets played out in terms of the roles that you look at. So earlier on, conversations at CI were largely directed at CIOs, especially when you came to conversations around how will you drive digital transformation or tech transformation. Now you have the same conversation with the chief operating officer. In a lot of cases, the chief operating officer also happens to be the CIO. One of our top five clients, our CIO in the last one year has just become the CEO. It wasn't a CIO to COO to CEO transformation migration. CIO, one of our largest customers a year back is now the CEO for the last nine months of that organization. So that's the third thing that we're seeing playing out. The broad, the, broad, the broad construct over the last five years, and you know, you know this better than I do, hasn't changed, but the receptiveness to conversations across the organization, not just the tech part of an organization, the eagerness for every organization to embrace technology, and finally, a growing realization that consumer experience is not just about the front-end experience. This is happening more, we find, in uh, banks. It is more about the middle and the back office being digitized, which will drive the consumer experience, is also becoming very prevalent. Because five years back, even five years back, when you talked about consumer experience, it used to be a very UI, UX driven kind of conversation. Today, I think the realization is absolutely clear. There's no point giving somebody a great pain to look into the organization. If the actual lived experience supported by middle and back office being completely automated isn't there. So... At a very high level, Hari, that's how I would characterize it. That's what we're seeing. Okay, very very nice. Uh, the way you articulated in these three different uh, parts. So in this backdrop, uh, from a co-forge perspective, uh, today, what are your biggest opportunities? Well, so the biggest opportunity, Hari, is to just, uh, I mean, the first one is just expanding areas that have worked for us in the past. For example, five years back, we said, uh, we said airlines and airports in travel. We said only capital markets by side. So the biggest opportunity we have is taking a model that's worked for us and widening it and broadening it in other sub-verticals or the verticals that we're already playing in. So today, compared to six years back, it's not only PNC insurance. We target all of insurance. It's not just airlines and airports. We also go after hospitality. We go after trains. We go after logistics. We go after travel tech, right? So that's the first opportunity as we see it, the ability to radiate within other sub-verticals of the verticals that we already are in. The second opportunity that we see is, we've so far in many ways focused only on three verticals. It is getting into absolutely new verticals. The next two that we've identified are healthcare and public sector uh, globally, largely outside India. So those are number four and number five that we are building on. Other opportunities, again, on the tech side, not very different from what most IT services organizations will tell you, but it's more a question of nuance and prioritization as we see it as the whole low-code, no-code space. That's one. 
We are investing very significantly in it. Second is cloud, but then you'll hear everybody talk about the cloud. So cloud clearly is a big area of focus for us. The third is data. We've been very focused on data engineering over the past few years. Analytics is the other nuance that is increasingly creeping in and data has been possibly the fastest growing service line for us. And I suspect it will stay that way for a while. Uh, and then closed ecosystems where our presence traditionally has not been very strong. Salesforce, Microsoft-based technologies are the fourth areas that we're looking at. So that's how I would characterize it. Sub-verticals, expanding within existing verticals, adding new verticals, and these four tech stacks. Can you talk about this a little bit more? Because I was going to ask you about how IT service is changing. Since you mentioned sure. no-code is an important area of investment and data engineering is another area of important investment. I mean, I'm thinking a, a cloud software company, for example, that's off offering a, a no-code platform. Uh, how, how would CoForge's services on no-code be different? Uh, and again, on data engineering, maybe a, a product company might offer something about, I don't know, data observability or something. Uh, again, from, from the CoForge perspective, how would it be different? What are your customers asking you about it? Maybe give us a couple of examples of sure. interesting implementations. So uh, low-code, no-code uh, will not be materially different from, let me put it this way. I, I mean, if you look at our relationship with Pega, right, it's been a strong relationship over the last five years. Pega does what Pega does in terms of creating that platform. We do what we do in terms of, as SI partners, bringing it to life by creating solutions which integrate Pega into the overall framework. Low-code, no-code, similarly, with one of, with, now, and I won't name the government, but one of the largest governments outside India in the West, we use the low-code, no-code platform that they needed when COVID struck. Uh, you will remember at that point in time, people had stopped going out. Retail business, especially the, 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 the smaller shops, the smaller establishments had a big issue in terms of being able to generate revenue. The government of that particular country was looking for a very scaled up and a very rapid deployment of a solution wherein they could actually incentivize citizens every time they spent, right, at a, at a small shop, not at a chain, a small amount of money for actually going and transacting at these stores and not just sitting at home and ordering everything on the Amazon or the Amazon equivalents. Low-code, no-code was a fantastic opportunity because low-code, no-code, as you and I know, A, it allowed us to create a scalable solution, a very quick, a very resilient solution, which allowed the government to run at scale a couponing scheme, wherein the equivalent of 10 units in that local currency was offered to citizens across the country to be able to do it. So that was a good example, we thought, of low-code, no-code actually coming to life at a point in time, and there was a pressing need for a technology solution. That's why low-code, no-code, we think is important. And that's why it's, for a firm our size, low-code, no-code is almost 15% of our aggregate revenues, which is a big number. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how all the preparation, uh, everything that you've put in place over the last five years or so, uh, how, the, how that is reflecting in the kind of orders that you're winning? And I know that in the most recent quarterly results, you talked about five large orders, I think, at least one of them over $50 million. Uh, so just walk us through how your type of contract, size of contracts are changing. Sure. Uh, so, uh, and, and uh, last quarter obviously was a, and you know this, Ari, was quarter three, which is normally the shortest quarter, tends to be a seasonally weak quarter. And you're right. In that seasonally weak quarter, we registered uh, 
if I remember right, about five large deals, a $50 million deal to $30 million deal and so on and so forth. But it's not just about last quarter. If you look at the last eight quarters, the median size of the deals that we've been able to close and the velocity of deals has been increasing. And I want to call out the fact that unlike a lot of our peers, the, the pandemic did not give us a lot of demand tailwind, right? Because one third mm -hmm. of our business used to come from travel. So mm -hmm. that business had completely collapsed. So un, we were somewhat different from the, the, our lived experience was different from what most of our peers experienced. They got a lot of demand tailwind. We did not get it because we got it in two thirds of our business, but one third of our business was near evaporating, right? So we were able to grow by largely pivoting very strongly towards managed services based large deals. Last quarter is a good example of five large deals, but last eight quarters, the median size has jumped up. If you went back beyond eight quarters, most of our TCV deals were 20 odd million dollars. If I look at the last six quarters alone, we should have signed, I could be wrong on this, but I think we would have signed more than six or seven or at least six or seven $50 million plus TCB deals. So the velocity has gone up on those deal signings. More importantly, from our vantage, the, the size of those deals has gone up. The mandate and as the size goes up, it obviously ends up being a little more strategic, a little more important for clients. One example, a good example, I think, of what we've signed, and we called this out a few quarters back, was a $105 million four-year, eight-month contract, uh, where the mandate is for the UK operations of one of the largest banks in the world over this period of four-year, eight months to drive transformation of the middle and the back office of the bank itself. So that's that's an example, Hari, uh, of what you were talking about. Would that be your biggest order to date? Uh, in the last few years, uh, yeah, uh, that four-year, eight-month, $105 million TCB contract was the biggest and it was a very new relationship. So this was not a very tenured relationship and to that extent, it was a strategic and a good order for us. Mm. I mean, through the course of this conversation, you've been talking about sharper focus on clearly defined domains and so on. I get that. Uh, but maybe attempt giving us a sort of a big picture idea of what has changed at CoForge uh, that's giving you this capability of winning these kind of orders today? Sure, so I, uh, I would say there are four things that have changed and it, the change obviously has been across a continuum, right? Five and a half years back, uh, we did a complete leadership change. It was not a, it was not an incremental or a piecemeal or a part of the leadership change that happened. Uh, five and a half years back, uh, and today, when I look at it, all the 14 leaders who are part of my immediate direct team are folks who joined us over the last five years itself. That leadership change, uh, as we did it five and a half years back, we were very keen and very particular about only hiring leaders from what then were called the scale IT or the tier one IT players, because these were a lot of leaders who were very comfortable with scale and were very comfortable with the idea of rapid growth with, with, with speed. The second change that we did uh, five and a half years back was we attempted and I think we succeeded in changing the operating ethic, the performance ethic of the organization. We got together as a team. We said that, listen, we couldn't be 400 million forever. We did want to grow. We wanted to scale up with speed. And we put in place structures that have worked well for us. For instance, again, the approach here was not to do things incrementally. When it came to the front end, 
large deal incentives were quadrupled. We did not increase it by 20, 30, 40%. They were quadrupled straight off the bat. When it came to the mothership, the delivery organization, the range of increments was tripled. So the best versus somebody at the lagging end, the difference in terms of the increment that they were getting was tripled straight off the bat. So that was the second thing that we did. Those changes, which were pretty significant changes, also impacted the operating ethic of the organization. The interesting thing is with all those changes, and I said this earlier, our, our attrition, this I think is the metric that I take the most pride in. Our attrition has been the lowest across the industry on the planet. The third change that we did is what you and I have talked about. Instead of being a, a firm that had about a team of 5,000, 6,000 people, which is what we had then, and which was working across industries, we walked away from a lot of business. And we said we will focus on a few spaces where we have enough expertise so that we can stand up against anyone instead of operating right across and losing against scale players most of the time. And the fourth thing that we did, Hari, which worked for us, is we completely recreated the back end. My belief, our belief collectively as an organization is in the long term, any firm can have a good one or two or three year growth patch. Long-term growth only comes on the back of execution and good solid delivery, right? People will give you work for a year or two years if you start discounting left, right and center, but longer term clients will stay with you. Repeat business will be very high if their lived experience of the actual delivery is good. Our delivery organization six years back had just three pillars, infrastructure, BPO and ADM. Today, we have 16 service lines. When I talked to you about data having grown so much, when I talked about low code, no code, when I talk about cloud as a service line, when I talk about integration, when I talk about product engineering, these are service lines that we've created under, I think, exceptional leaders and with very strong SMEs, which has differentiated us. So those are the four changes that we've done, Hari. Leadership, which resulted in change in the performance ethic and the goals of the organization, focusing only of on a few industries and then really doubling down on the back-end execution delivery engine. Mm. Can you talk about this a little bit more from the point of view of when you came in, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced and give us a sense of some of the things that you uh, implemented to deal with them? The biggest challenge, uh, Hari, uh, and, and, I, and I say this even in the context of levers, right? Uh, it's only about change and it's only about people. So the biggest challenge that I faced is when you're trying to change leadership, when you're trying to change culture, when you're trying to change the strategy, everything that we all learn about in management school around change management and, and, and the problems that come in, come up and, and that's what you face. When you, when you change leaders, you get new leaders on board. You have to sit with the leaders who are being replaced. You have to make sure that you settle down the new leaders who come in. You need to make sure that you communicate effectively around why changes are being made. When we changed policies, obviously some people gain, some people do not gain. Making sure that communication across levels was robust so that change did not come with people leaving the organization. You, you, will, you will hear a lot of stories around change because... Everyone and their uncle these days talks about change management and any new leader who comes in affects change. The last kind of change that you want is change which destabilizes the organization and has people running out of the door. So the biggest challenge that I had was to drive very significant change and yet make sure that I, it was not disruptive 
that our employees, our leaders embraced it and stayed with us. So that was the challenge I had. I mean, it had two heads. I needed to drive change and I needed to also make sure that inherent core underlying stability on the people side did not get disrupted. That balance, arriving at that balance was the biggest challenge that I had. Okay. Just to stay a little bit longer on on the leadership lessons and experience. Over the last five odd years, can you talk about what have been the biggest uh, uh, lessons or even advice if you want to give to other leaders who want to learn from your experience in terms of, I know you've spoken about the culture at CoForge and I've seen some posts and so on. So tell us about that. How did you build this culture? How do you see it today in CoForge? How do you define it? You know, the way you have one employee loyalty, I'll put it that way. Sure, sure, sure. So let me let me break it into three parts, right? When it comes to advice, I'm not very good at advice. I am not a great advisor. Uh, I think all of us have operating styles that come from our own experiences. Uh, my operating style, and there's an anecdote that I talk about a lot with my leadership team. I used to, at least when I came in, my dad used to be in the army. When I was growing up as an army kid, I wanted to go to the army. So a lot of what you hear as stories stick to your head. It's a very interesting story. It's and I'm going to sidetrack you a little bit. There's a very interesting story uh, that I used to hear, at least in the regiment that my dad was in. Right? Uh, there was. Let me just play this out. It's from the '62 conflict with China, where there was in the army. You have these concepts of range cards. When you give a soldier a rifle and they do their training practices, they shoot at a target. At the end of the shooting, that range card is what is brought to them so that they can figure out did they shoot in the right place or they did not. '62. Not not a fantastic conflict from India's point of view, but there was a point in time and there was a small platoon that was doing a very good job. The brigadier in charge of the platoon was at the back at headquarters. And there was this gentleman who was busy doing whatever he could in the trenches, fighting whoever he was. When the immediate conflict got over, the brigadier walked up and asked the gentleman, let's call him Mr. X, Lal Singh. And he said, Lal Singh, what the hell have you been doing? Your ammunition is all over. Correct? Please give me a reason or why your ammunition is over. And Lal Singh turned around at him and said, Sir, and he put, I'm sure he put it crudely. He said, listen, when the bullets were flying around, I never saw you anywhere close to me. Now that the bullets have stopped, you've come here and you're asking me for what is the range card going to look like. I think long story short, the lesson that I grew up with was a leader has to be in the trenches with the folks who actually are part of the organization. So I don't have advice for leaders. And I can't say that we've done fantastic things that I can become an advisor. But the one thing that's worked for me and the one thing that you'll find all of the leaders in CoForge being good at is execution. We believe any strategy, any structure can succeed, provided the execution is good and provided the distance between the so-called leaders and the people who actually do the job is as minimal as it is. So the only advice, if this is advice that I have, is not very different from what most people will tell you. As leaders, we need to be as close to our clients and as close to our employees on a lived, regular basis as we can. So that's that's answer one to what you said. Second, uh, as far as culture is concerned, I think and I believe and I know our culture is very simple. We say co-forge is people, co-forge is growth. It is just that simple. There's no fancy slogan hearing. And when, when it comes to people, the the proof lies in the pudding. Massive amount of change, yet very high employee retention. And people don't stay with you because you pay them more. We can all, we all know of instances where organizations pay more, at least temporarily. People stay with you because of what they experience. The very fancy word around that is culture. 
But the way I see it is one should look at the benefits an organization offers and not just the salary that the organization does. I'm actually speaking with you, Hari, from our campus in Greater Noida. And I would love for you to come here because I believe there is no technology campus which is better than what a firm or size has built in North India. And you should come and visit us. It's like the Infi campuses of the late 1990s. As a firm, we have put our money where our mouth is. It obviously takes away from our bottom line, right? But when you come to this place, and we'll hold a, we'll hold a cricket match in your honor, it's a complete cricket field, swimming pool, auditorium, amphitheaters. One and a half weeks from now, this will be the finest garden in all of North India. So when it comes to benefits, we haven't done the... We haven't tried to economize on what employees actually experience. So when we say co-forge is people, it is people. It is, it is not, it is not the next, it is not a slogan on the wall which you don't experience. Employees see it. And over time, all of us have brains. We all figure out when an organization or a leader is just saying the right things because that's the flavor of the day, month, or year, versus when they're actually going to stay with it. So that's co-forge is people is the first part of it. And co-forge's growth is the other part of it. I am crystal clear, we are crystal clear that growth does good things for people. It offers all of us more opportunities. It does fantastic things for our clients. If we can actually enable it with our functional process and quick expertise, and obviously it's fantastic for investors. So it's a pretty simple culture. The proof lies in how we execute it and how we drive it, but that is fundamentally who we are. We are co-forge's people, co-forge's growth. We think we are very, very good when it comes to execution. Five years back, when we used to present to investors, I used to use only one slide and there were no words in it. So I said, I'm not going to stand here and tell you this is my vision, this is my mission, this is my belief, this is my value. We would put up 13 operating metrics. And at that time, we only had data for eight quarters and there used to be eight columns. And we said, this is not just about revenue doing well or EBITDA doing well or PAD doing well. These are 13 operating metrics. An organization is set up for the long term if all metrics are trending well, not just doing a two-year good run on revenue or on margins. So that's, I think, people focused on growth with a very strong belief that longer-term growth comes on the back of delivery and not just mindless sales is who we are. Okay, very nice. So so talk to us about uh, the future of uh, CoForge or the CoForge of the future. I know that in the relatively short term, you have the ambition of doubling your revenue to $2 billion. Mm -hmm. I know that that's out there, but, and you've not mentioned a, an exact timetable. Uh, that said, can you think aloud a little bit more about the co-forge of, say, 2030? And, and I get that change is happening so fast that it's probably a little bit silly to be asking about something down the right. line in 2030, but still, just what would you like it to be? We would like it to be... And we mean it. We would like it to be a consulting organization because I don't think that anyone can provide consulting in the true sense of the word consulting better than a tech services organization that understands process. It's very easy for management consultants to come and look at the world, look at extrapolation and say, this is what you do. We are the people who are in the weeds. Our employees know on a day-to-day -day basis what is happening across platforms, across lines of businesses, across client organizations, and then across multiple client organizations. 2030, if we do all the good things and the right things over the next eight years, 
we would like to be the organization where at least in whatever industries we are in at that point in time, if the board, if the COO, if the CIO, if the digital head wants to have a conversation around the issue they are facing, we would be one of the three players that they would pick up the phone and speak to. That's, that's how we would like to think of it. We would really like to be solvers. They should, they should know that we will have real solutions for them. And they should hope, they should believe that if they give us a mandate, we will deliver those solutions instead of only give them the solution and walk out of the door. Very nice. If you look at the IT services sector as it is today, uh, what are the things that make you feel optimistic about its prospects? And what are some of the things that might be really worrying you? I think you'd have figured out I'm not a very natural warrior. So <laughs> let me focus on what uh, uh, what what gives me uh, what gives me a lot of confidence already is in the last 20 years there have been a lot of issues that have come come and hit us in 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 the face and they were unexpected issues not planned and yet the sector has not just been resilient. Resilience is a very common word like culture that everyone throws. It's actually grown and it continues to grow. Right. I look at organizations all parts of the world as you as do you. I think we've now scaled up to an extent. We have had people who've been part of this industry who've gone into so many different, not so many, every industry across almost every country across the world, that this structure, the IT services industry, the value we deliver, the de-risking that we do, the resilience that we offer is now intuitively understood. We will have issues like the pandemic, I'm sure, in some other shape or form. There'll be other unexpected things that will come and be thrown at us. But at this stage, we finally reached a scale as an industry where I really don't think any one of them, I mean, obviously, all of these things will come and hit you in the short term, should take away from, from this industry being able to continue to scale up and continue to add value uh, for industries across the world as a as a horizontal for any industry across the world so that's that's where i see uh that's where i derive a lot of the confidence that i talked to you about coming in just out of curiosity how long have you been in the u.s uh, uh, sorry here's the funny thing i went with infosys in 2001 when i left levers i was there for nine years then i decided my daughters had to grow up in india so 2010 my wife and i came back and they did grow up in india i went back to the us in 2017 with this role so now i've been there for six years i spent 10 years earlier and i've been moving around excellent thank you again sir for making time for this definitely hope to keep the conversation going my pleasure hari really enjoyed it thank you that's it for this conversation i hope you found it interesting you can find all our podcasts at forbesindia.com and on your favorite podcast app. I'm Hari Thank you for listening.